0: If any of you are uh, chilly sitting out there, I have two possible solutions. Huddle together, or come up here, because it's hot up here. (laughs) It's like a blazing inferno. And just remind yourself, as we have this amazing, beautiful January morning where it's below 30 degrees, just remind yourself that we're killing mosquitoes. It's God's plan of mosquito control, Right? None of you are con, uh, convinced by that. All right. Tough crowd this morning. We'll just uh, You guys focus on these few verses from Matthew chapter 3. I'll go sit over here for about 15 minutes, and we'll continue with the service. Uh, yeah, they'll be happy in June. Ain't nobody got time for this, right? January 6th is a special day in the church calendar. It marks the end of the Christmas season. And it brings us to into a very brief period that revolves around epiphany. Has anyone ever had an epiphany? Yes. yes, good. Fantastic. Thank you. At least Claudia is awake, and Eddie, I heard you chuckle. Fantastic this morning. Yeah, an epiphany is a, a moment of insight, a moment where the light goes on, a moment where truth perhaps is revealed in a way before that had been or truth that had been before veiled somehow is is revealed. And when we use the word Epiphany in Christian circles and in reference to Jesus, it refers to a glimpse of Jesus' divine majesty. It's a a glimpse of the manifestation of Jesus, the eternal Son of God incarnate. Uh, Often the, the connected gospel readings Uh, of the visit of the Magi, the baptism of Jesus, and, and Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana, here we see glimpses into just who Jesus is. We're given glimpses into the identity of the child that was born and whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. We're given glimpses into the identity of the man who lived and died and rose again. And this morning, we, we look at Jesus' baptism as reported by St. Matthew. And here we see that the baptism of Jesus reveals him to be the Messiah, the Son of God, who identifies with those he's come to save. Let say that for you again. You'll hear it a number of times throughout the course of our time together this morning. But the baptism of Jesus reveals him to be the Messiah, the Son of God. Who identifies with those he's come to save? As we look at St. Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism, let's first say what the baptism is not. This whole event is not about Jesus' ontology. It's not about his being or his person or his essence. There is an old heresy, an old false teaching that said Jesus became divine at the moment of the baptism. There's this old bad teaching that's rejected as heresy where it says Jesus was adopted as the son of the father and infused with a divine essence. That's not what this is about. Jesus, the incarnation of the eternal word, was the Son of God from the moment of conception, truly God and truly man. As our Nicene Creed states, Jesus was and is the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. This means... This means that when Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was divine of one being with the Father. And this means that when Jesus stepped into the water to be baptized by John, he did so as God from God, light from light, true God from true God. The person Jesus was and is the enfleshment of the eternal Son of God. He was and is both fully God and fully man. And the baptism didn't have anything to do with that ontology, that being, that essence. It has rather everything to do with vocation and identification. Again, this is epiphany. This is an unveiling of the reality that lies behind, so to speak. And the baptism of Jesus was a necessary event even. Jesus himself said to John the Baptist that it must be done to fulfill all righteousness. This simply means that God the Father required it, and so the perfect Son, Jesus, obeys. But why? Why is it necessary? If Jesus is indeed uh, the, the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, why is it that he goes into the water, comes back out? Why is it that the Spirit descends and the voice from heaven speaks? Well, Matthew doesn't actually describe the baptism itself. You notice that? It just says it happened. He didn't talk about how uh, John took uh, Jesus into his arms and plugged his nose a little bit and dipped him back into the water. It doesn't say that John took a picture of, of, uh, and dipped into the Jordan and poured it over his head. It doesn't say anything about how the baptism actually occurred. It just says that it happened. Matthew's focus is actually on what happens after the baptism. And because he focuses his attention, he focuses ours upon what happened after the event. And in the events after the baptism, Jesus is revealed to be the Messiah, the Son of God. Starting at verse 16 of Matthew chapter 3, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descend upon him like a dove and coming to rest on him. Two things happened after Jesus was baptized. The first was that the Spirit of God descended upon him and remained. This is both what theologian Gerhardus Voss has called real equipment for Jesus to be the Messiah, his vocation, his mission, his job, And it is a precursor to Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the the prophecies that are often considered to be messianic, those prophecies talking about God's special agent of redemption, referred to that agent receiving and having the Holy Spirit in a special and unique way for the purpose of doing that which God gave him to do. And I'm thinking here of a passage like Isaiah chapter 61, or a passage, as Betts read for us this morning, from Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 61 begins, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because. And this is the passage that Jesus took and applied to himself as he preached in the synagogue of Nazareth that Luke records for us in the fourth chapter of his gospel. Isaiah 42 specifically states, Behold, my servant, I have put my spirit upon him, as Beth's read for us this morning, to do these things. And so here, after his baptism, we see Jesus receive the Spirit of God precisely to do that which the Messiah was to do. In fulfillment of prophecy, in order to complete the vocation the Messiah was to have to accomplish those things God sent him to accomplish. And by the way, Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 12, If by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, which indicates to us that Jesus needed the Holy Spirit in this way to do that which the Messiah was supposed to do. To cast out demons, as Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61 talks about bringing sight to the blind, preaching good news, healing the broken, proclaiming liberty. And so the coming of the Spirit upon Jesus does not speak to a lack of his being. Rather, it positively proclaims that he is the promised Messiah. Come in the power of God to work for the people of God. Now, people may say to us, but Father Caleb, there are other people in the Old Testament who received the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist himself here had the Holy Spirit, and I would say, absolutely, that's true. But if we notice from the pages of the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit doesn't seem to abide with that person in the same way as with Jesus. Think, for example, of one of the judges, Samson. There's a lot that distinguishes Samson from Jesus, let's be honest. But one of those things is that when you see Samson do a feat of strength or of mighty power, it says the Spirit of the Lord descended. And every time that he either slays a thousand Philistines with a jawbone of a donkey or he does that weird trick with the foxes and fire or whatever he does, the Spirit of the Lord descends upon him. Here with Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord comes to rest upon him, comes to remain Upon him. This is unlike any prophet ever before in the people of Israel's history. This is unlike anything else in all of Scripture. This is a precursor to Pentecost. Let's remember that John the Baptist said, just in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 3, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so the coming of the Holy Spirit, yes, anoints Jesus, marks him out to be the Messiah in God's specially appointed way, but it also marks Jesus out as the one who will baptize with the Spirit. In this precursor to Pentecost, Jesus is marked by the reception of the Holy Spirit. It sets him apart as the one that John talked about the one who comes to baptize with the Spirit and with fire, the Spirit that he gives out then, he has received. It is his gift to give, if that makes any kind of sense. In his baptism, Jesus is anointed, ordained, if you will, to do the office of Messiah. It's a public announcement of his office. It marks him out at the very beginning of his ministry. The events surrounding the baptism of Jesus reveal him to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And after Jesus was baptized, two things happened. The Spirit descended, and the voice from heaven spoke. Chapter 3, verse 17, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The voice of God speaks phrases from the Old Testament, phrases that once again point to the Messianic office. First, God proclaims Jesus to be the beloved Son. This comes from Psalm 2, specifically verse 7. And Psalm 2 is often referred to as a a regal psalm. It talks about the Lord's anointed king. It's a celebration that the Lord is with the king, and it's a warning that the Lord will fight on behalf of the king. And it came to be connected to the office of Messiah, the king of kings, who would come in the power of God and make all things right. And this is a testimony of the Father. Jesus is that king. Jesus is that Messiah, the Son of God, in a unique and powerful way a second, the voice also proclaims the Father's pleasure with the Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Again, this comes from the pages of the Old Testament, Isaiah 42, verse 1. That particular chapter of Isaiah is one of the early songs of the suffering servant in which an individual is called and set apart by God for his service. About that servant, God says, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And as we heard this morning, there are other things that will happen. Heaven speaks here as Jesus, after his baptism, as Jesus comes up out of the water, heaven speaks. And as heaven speaks, God pronounces the identity of this man. He is the servant Messiah. He is the one anointed with the Spirit to do the work of God in and for the whole world. He is the Son incarnate Jesus, and God is happy with him. God is pleased with the Son. The Father takes delight in Jesus He gives his stamp of approval upon the Son. He commissions him to ministry. He initiates the public phase of his life. And this is proclaimed in the hearing of the crowds. The events surrounding the baptism of Jesus reveal him to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And there's just one more thing. Well, there's lots more things to be said, but this morning for our time, there's just one more thing to be said. In the baptism, Jesus, the Messiah, The one anointed with the Holy Spirit, the Son of God, in this unique and powerful way, this Jesus identifies with those he's come to save. The conversation between John and Jesus is actually pretty enlightening, I think. Matthew has only one verse. verse 14, Jesus has come down from Galilee to the Jordan to see John. Uh, I think it's St. Luke that puts this within the context of other people also coming to be baptized by John, and John, we're told, would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Just think about that for a second. John the Baptist, one who Jesus will say, among uh, all of men, no one is greater than John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist recognized the reality of Jesus, He recognized that Jesus had no sin of which to repent, and thus he had no need to receive the baptism that John offered. In fact, John knows himself so well to realize that in the face of Jesus, this righteous and holy prophet of God recognized his need. There's a role reversal here. John says, hang on now. I'm not going to dunk you or sprinkle you or pour upon you. You do that to me. I need your baptism. And yet Jesus was baptized. Notice that. Jesus was baptized. Jesus said, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus' baptism by John is not about Jesus' repenting of sin. It's about him identifying with sinners. It's about him identifying with the people of God. Now, oftentimes, in, in, in church language, in church ease, in Christian ease, we, we often state that Jesus, when he died upon the cross, did so in the place of sinners, identifying with sinners, and in St. Paul's words, becoming a curse, that, and that he was made to be sin. It's what we call vicarious or substitutionary atonement. Jesus dying in the place of those he represented and identified with. And how does that re- relate to Jesus' baptism? Well, at the very beginning of his public ministry, Jesus walks into the water to identify with those he's come to save. Gerhardus Voss, again, calls this an expression of Jesus' vicarious relation to the people of God. Jesus, in his baptism, endorses John's ministry, places himself within the stream of God's work. He identifies with the people. The point is that it isn't just upon the cross that that he connects himself with sinners, but that he does so even at the very beginning of his ministry. And that, I believe, is the glory of the incarnation. That true God from true God, the eternal Son of God through whom all things were made, taking up the flesh of his creation, was made like his brothers in every respect, as the author of Hebrews writes, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This Messiah, this Son of God, in a unique, special, set-apart way who receives the anointing of the Holy Spirit does not skate through life untouched, unfazed by life. Rather, he comes and he gets his hands muddy. I dare say he gets his hands bloody as he works as a carpenter, drives nails Puts together beams. He probably had splinters in his hands. Here he walks into the water to so identify with his people that they can say about him, He's one of us. What glory to behold, what grace to receive. What a God who creates and who redeems. We've said this morning that the baptism of Jesus reveals him to be the Messiah, the Son of God, who identifies with those he's come to save. But so what? What difference does it make? Well, it makes all the difference in the world? Can I tell you that? It makes all the difference in the world. You see, in all of human history, and in all of the attempts to answer the cosmic questions of meaning and purpose and salvation, Only Christianity has this good news. Only Christianity has this gospel. Every other world religion endorses a glorified self-help program or deliverance through some far-removed disinterested deity who makes demands from afar, which is really just another version of self-help only with a bloated sense of guilt. Only the gospel of Jesus offers a Savior who is God himself and thus able to forgive and has come into his creation to live as perfect man and thus able to pay perfect penalty. Only the gospel of Jesus offers a Savior who is the Messiah, the Son of God, and so identifies with those he's come to save that he becomes one of them in order to do all that is necessary for life and salvation. You must not have heard me say all that. Thank you. The baptism of Jesus reveals him to be the Messiah, the Son of God, who identifies with those he's come to save. What difference does it make? It makes all the difference in the world. If Jesus wasn't the Messiah, the Son of God, in the way the Bible depicts and the creeds recount, then there is no such thing as salvation. If Jesus didn't identify with those he came to save fully, then there is no such thing as salvation. But thank God reality doesn't match our ifs and buts. Epiphany is a glimpse beyond the ordinary. Epiphany is a glimpse of a deeper reality that that lies behind our perception even. The baptism of Jesus pulls back the layers, so to speak, where we see the reality that lies beneath the surface of this carpenter from Nazareth, this man Jesus. And there we find the Messiah, the Son of God, who's come to save. I've said this to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand together. I see that our front projector has died again. It must not like the cold either. That's exciting.